It's a blessing and a privilege to have God's Word translated into English. It's something we take for granted every day, but Christians throughout the centuries have not always had that privilege, so I think that's worth noting. We will be back in the book of James this morning as we consider the next section of of verses, and I'm grateful for this opportunity to have two Sundays back-to-back and see how these two texts are connected as we look at the subject of trials. As we consider our trials, we we tried to look at that last week and think about uh, what God's Word says in those difficult circumstances, and no matter... uh, how well we know God's Word, we're always tempted to ask why. And we know that God is in our trials. He's there. He's testing. He's purifying our faith. He's producing steadfastness in us, the verses from last week told us. We want to see our trials from God's vantage point, and, or at least recognize that God's vantage point is, is different from ours, and that Every joy or trial falleth from above and is truly traced upon our dial by the Son of Love, as that hymn says, by the Lord Himself. But it's important to remember and consider that, that sometimes, and, and I think this came out last week as we thought about it, sometimes we can look back in, at a valley and, and see how God was at work and see how God used that. And as He weaves that tapestry of our lives, we see the beauty in it. But sometimes we can't. Sometimes it's, it's just a, a mess of dark threads in that tapestry of our life. And, and, and that's all that we have to mark that dark valley that sometimes it seems like we never get out of. But it's then that we need wisdom that comes from above, from God Himself. And that's the subject that we want to take up this morning. That in the reality of trials, and not just the very hard ones, but in all trials, in the life of believers... We should see that we need divine wisdom, and that wisdom is available for the asking from our kind and gracious and generous God, provided that we ask in faith. So let us pray, and let us read this text from James 1, 5 through 11. Let us pray. Lord, you have given us your word, and we're thankful for it. And we um, want to sit under its authority. We want it to work in us and through us. And I pray that you would teach us and help us to gain wisdom from your word. Lord, you are the fount of all wisdom, and we ask that, that we would be made wise through hearing and receiving your word. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, be acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. James 1, starting with verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us this morning in his holy and inerrant word. 
As I was preparing for this message, I listened to a sermon by an accomplished preacher, and he used this illustration. He said that if we could perform a word association test with James, the author of this epistle, we might give him words from, his own, from the text and see what his reply might be. So in this hypothetical situation, we might pose the word to James, Jesus, and he might say, Lord, We would say dispersion, and James would say the 12 tribes. Testing, James might say steadfastness. Trials, James would likely say joy. Now, if you're like many people, you might hear that and say, wait a minute, did did he hear that right? James, I said trials, he would say joy. Perhaps you would, would, if he's in a sound booth, you might open the door and say, uh, James, I'm not sure you heard me. I I said, trials. And James would say, I heard you the first time. Joy. And you would say, wait a minute, what what am I missing here? Trials? Joy? This doesn't add up. And James would say, what you're missing is wisdom. For no matter how much head knowledge we have about our trials, unless we have wisdom, we cannot understand and endure our trials as we need to. And as we consider this text, I want us to see it under three headings that that come as imperatives to us, because they come that way in the text. The first has to do with what we ask for, the next with how we ask, and the third with how this wisdom principle applies to all believers, regardless of their position or status. First, we could say simply, if you lack, ask. Secondly, if you doubt, trust. And thirdly, Whether you're rich or poor, rejoice. The first point, of course, we see in that familiar verse, verse 5, which says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, perhaps you are like a lot of Christians, and you have looked at James 1.5, and you've considered that verse in isolation. Well, it has much to say to us in a variety of circumstances. And certainly, if we're honest, we see the need for wisdom in all areas of our life. Often, this verse has been cited by young people, myself included, as I was younger and thinking about what to do with my life. And, and, um, you know, young people wonder and they need wisdom for that. That's not wrong because God does give wisdom. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that book implores us again and again to seek after wisdom. God is the source of all wisdom, and Christ himself is the wisdom of God. But I think we do this text a disservice if we consider it only in isolation and only in relation to the big decisions of life. Last week, I trust we clearly recognized that trials are dark, perplexing, and and very different, very varied. But I don't have to tell you that. You know that from experience. But what do we need to face those trials? We need God's wisdom. And to understand how wisdom addresses this great need, we must first understand what it is not and what it is. First, we would say that it's not the same as knowledge, but it does involve understanding. And there is a component of it where knowledge is involved. You have to know and understand who God is to live rightly. And that's more getting at what wisdom is. It's, wisdom is not measured by an IQ test because, unfortunately, there's a lot of highly intelligent fools in the world. 
Because that's what Scripture calls that person who lacks wisdom, is a foolish person. It's not your EQ, it's not your IQ, it's not your EQ, your emotional quotient, although that may be getting closer to the idea. But biblically speaking, one has wisely said that wisdom is taking our knowledge of God and putting it into action in the nitty-gritty of, of life. It's, it's understanding with action. It's skill in the art of godly living. It's walking in God's ways. It's seeking to live in the fear of the Lord. It's learning to love what God loves and learning to hate what God hates. It's understanding the God of Scripture. Wisdom is seeking to fulfill God's plan. It's living it out, His plan and His design for us. And here in relation to our trials, we see that we do need and should desire wisdom. How does it apply to our trials? Well, we need it to see our trials from God's perspective and trust His goodness in them. Even when we cannot fully see things from His perspective knowing that He is at work to sanctify and make us more like Christ. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Wisdom helps us to trust God when we don't understand. But this verse doesn't just tell us of our need. It tells us of the God who gives. We see our giving God in in there. In fact, that's the literal translation, that the giving God do we, do we really see God as a giving God? Certainly we recognize that our salvation is all of Him, but when it comes to the things that we need to face our trials, I fear that sometimes we see God as reproachful, as stingy, as somehow withholding grace from us. No, God is gracious. He is a giving God. This verse tells us two things about God in relation to how He gives. He gives generously and without reproach. As I was, as I was studying this, and, and one commentator bore out that, that this word in the original that, that the ESV and many other translations translates generously, uh, commentators choose to, to um, kind of not necessarily define it in a different way, but it, it's interesting because this word in the original is only used one time in the Greek New Testament. So there's, it's a little harder for, for um, uh, as, as you study it to understand the meaning because there's not other places in the New Testament where it's used. But what it means, it means graciously, bountifully, sincerely, simply, or unwaveringly. I think generous is, is a fair uh, translation of it. But when you think about those words, gracious, bountiful, sincere, unwavering, that should make us think about God's character. God gives in relation to who He is. And that's what we need to think about. God gives in harmony with, the per- with who He is. He is a God of love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son. He gives simply without impatience. He gives with a single focus to give us what we need, to give us wisdom in our trials. Secondly, this... This verse tells us that he gives without reproach. Reproach is to express disapproval or disappointment. It means to revile, to disgrace, to mock or insult. God doesn't look at us when we're asking and say, Oh, it's you again. Why do you keep coming and asking for wisdom? Don't you know how many times you've broken my law just today? No, God is a God of grace. He is a God that gives without 
reproach. Remember what our Lord said in Luke. He said, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Simple, gracious giving is what our God is all about. As I thought about this and thought about how I might illustrate this, I thought of when I was in college, and it was my first year of college, and um, my wife was um, set to graduate from uh, high school that, um, that spring, and I wanted to drive from Ohio, where I was in college, to Kansas and surprise her at her graduation. Well, in this particular college that I attended, it was a Christian college, and at the end of the spring term every year, they had this big conference, or it was actually a camp meeting. And all of the students, even though the classes and the finals were all done, they had to stay for an extra 10 days to host all the guests that came onto campus for this camp meeting. But I had the audacity to think that maybe I could be excused for a few days to make this trip to Kansas. So I asked the the dean, I think it was, and and, uh, he said, well, you're going to have to ask the president. So I got my courage up, made an appointment, went up, I remember, a narrow flight of stairs to the president's office, and he was a man that was about as, as broad as he was tall and kind of a gruff man, kind of had a gravelly voice. And so I explained my situation to him, and he took a deep breath and leaned over his desk, and he said, well, I suppose. But I'll tell you what, these types of things need to come to a screeching halt. And so I thought, I guess that's a yes. And so I thanked him, and I uh, went about my way and realized that, yes, he had given, but he had done it very grudgingly. But as I look back on it, he had limited resources. He couldn't let every student do that because the, 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 the event and the thing was hosted by the students in a sense. But our God is not like that. Our God is not limited. He is the source. He is the fount of all wisdom, and He is a giving God. He does not give with any reproach. He gives freely out of His grace and out of His wisdom But this text tells us there's something else that's important to note about how we ask. It says that we should ask with faith, with no doubting. It says in verse 6, in fact, James uses very strong language for those who might doubt. He says that person should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. God is giving. He wants to give to us, but he will not give when we don't trust in him. So what is this doubt? What is it? Does this mean that we must have perfect, unwavering faith? If we think about our faith, we, we often see that it's not always pure. We have selfish motives often. And yet, we look in Scripture, and, and just a few Sunday evenings we go, ago, we talked about the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. How did she approach Jesus? She s- snuck through the crowd. She crawled up, probably literally on her hands and knees, to touch the hem of his garment. Her faith didn't seem to be really focused on Christ as the Son of God. And yet Christ, in his mercy, touched her and healed her. He also instructed her about her faith. We also see the the father of the boy with the unclean spirit who sought Jesus to cast out that unclean spirit and restore his son. Jesus spoke to him of the importance of faith, and the father said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. He recognized that that he struggled in his faith, 
And yet Christ, he didn't turn him away saying, you, didn't have enough, you don't have enough faith. No, he had mercy and compassion on him. He cast out the unclean spirit and restored the boy. But I think James gives us some, some rather vivid word pictures here that help us understand that doubting person. He says that that person is double-minded, verse 8, and that they are unstable. Now, when you read this word double-minded, you, you think of two minds that are at, at war, and you think something's not right. When we lived in Mississippi, we went to the Museum of Natural Science, and, and they, had, they literally had a snake in a, in a glass cage that had two heads. Now, if there's anything I hate worse than a snake, it's a two-headed snake. So, you, you think about that and you think that's just wrong. That's kind of grotesque. Well, when you think about the double-minded man, we should think that is wrong. That's an anomaly. That should not be. Well, what is James saying here? Well, I think he places that word in opposition to the word that we looked at about God's generosity, that God is single-minded in how he gives. And yet, the person that doubts is double-minded in how they ask. The double-minded person does not consider God as being so gracious and single-minded in His giving to us. The double-minded person doubts God's character and consistently fails to completely entrust themselves to His care. They fail to cast their care upon God because they fail to trust that God truly cares for them. I think that's why it's so important that we begin our prayers with adoration. We adore God for who He is reflecting upon and reminding ourselves of His glory, His beauty, His power, His holiness, His grace, His mercy, His kindness, His wisdom, His justice, His goodness, His truth. See all the fuel we have for prayers of adoration from Scripture? Meditating upon His character helps us to be single-minded. It anchors our faith in the God of Scripture. But the double-minded man doubts God's character and doubts God's promises. That person is also unstable. James tells us that they are like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. I grew up in the middle of the USA, and the only waves that we saw were amber waves of grain. But as I've moved to the south and got the experience of sitting on the beach and watching those waves just come in relentlessly just all day and all night long, but you know, they're not consistent. They continue to come, and if you've ever been on a boogie board like some of my kids do, they get out there and they're trying to gauge and guess you know, the best wave and when it's going to come to try to carry them to shore. But those waves are not consistent. Waves are caused primarily by the wind, and that's what the text says about the doubtful person, that they're driven along by a force outside themselves. They're at the mercy of some other power. They are tossed about. James gives us such a vivid picture of this doubting person that it's, that it's really easy to see the antithesis of that, and that is the person that trusts. That is the person of faith. For the doubting person is double-minded. The man or woman of faith is single-minded. The doubting person doubts God's character. The trusting one abides in the knowledge of God as he is revealed in his word. The doubter is unstable the faithful person is steady, steadfast. Remember what we said about steadfastness? Having that fixed direction and that firmness of purpose? The doubter is acted upon by forces outside of himself, and the steadfast believer is firm in his purpose. 
and acts out of conviction. The one who trusts, the steadfast believer, has a great big view of God. That's one thing I love about Reformed theology is that it has this humongous view of who God is. We could say that the steadfast believer has his doctrine of God right. He knows that God has loved us with an everlasting love and desires to give his children good things. He or she knows that God is omniscient, that he is perfect in his wisdom, and he knows just what we need. The steadfast believer knows that God is completely sovereign and is all-powerful. The steadfast believer trusts that God knows just what they need. He loves them so much to give them what they need and that he is all-powerful to completely to bring it to pass. If you've ever read the book Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, that's kind of the, the thesis of the book. That God loves us so much, He'll give us what He needs. That God is so wise that He knows what he, we need. And that He is so powerful that He will, in His mercy and grace and His omniscient and omnipotent power, give us just what we need. The one who trusts is like that man in Psalm 1. He will be like a tree planted by the river of water and bring forth His fruit in His season. It's that idea of steadfastness. If you struggle with doubt this morning, learn what God is like. Learn of His attributes. Learn of His character. In the words of the hymn, Workman of God, oh, lose not heart, but learn what God is like. And in the darkest battlefield, thou shalt know where to strike. Thrice blessed is he to whom is given the instinct that can tell that God is on the field when he is most invisible. God is there. God is at work, even in the darkest of our trials, even when he seems invisible to us. This morning, we've considered that if we lack wisdom, we should ask. And if we struggle with doubt, we must trust. And lastly, we want to consider that whether you're rich or poor, you must rejoice. Now, I admit that that these verses seem a little disconnected with the previous text. However, I think there is a connection because we see in here these come on the heels of James' admonition to ask for wisdom and faith so that we can face our trials. And then there's this strong condemnation of, doubt, of the one who doubts. And, and, but here we see this contrast between the rich and the poor. And I think this serves to show some of the wide variety of trials that we face that Christians face as part of their life of following Christ. If a person has only known poverty, they struggle to understand that there are trials that come with riches. And if one has only known abundance, they will likely struggle to appreciate the trials that come with being poor. How that person will wonder how they're going to afford medicine for their children or make their next mortgage payment. Each of these groups have something, though, in which to rejoice or boast Verse 9 says that the lowly brother can boast in his exaltation. How are the lowly exalted? Well, he is exalted as he realizes that even though he is lacking in many of earthly pleasures, his spiritual deficiencies are even greater than his earthly privations. And while his material possessions may not swell to match those of others, 
All the spiritual treasures that anyone could ask for are His in Jesus Christ. He recognizes that He has riches beyond compare. Christ and all His benefits are His through His justification and adoption. He knows that though Jesus was was blessed with all the joys of heaven, yet He came. He took on flesh. He came as a servant, servant. He lived and died as a man. He became poor so that we might be rich. This man can boast in the great treasures that are his in Christ. What a blessing it is to see someone that, that is really poor by earthly standards. And yet, you, you walk away recognizing the, the riches that they have. I experienced that when we went to Peru this past summer as, as uh, Nathaniel and, and Nate took us to the home of a family in their church. And we sat there and it was, it was very evident to see their poverty. And, and they shared some of the things that they faced in, the, in their life. And, and Nate and Nathaniel filled us in on some of the things that, that, they, that they faced. And yet I walked away from, from that family's home thinking, what a blessing. These people are so rich. They have a heart for God and they have a heart for their neighbors and they love their neighbors well, even though it was, it was a rough neighborhood. What a blessing that is to recognize the, how the poor are exalted. But then how are the rich humbled? The rich man is humbled as he recognizes his wretchedness apart from Christ. He knows he has nothing in himself in which to boast. He knows that no matter how expensive or expansive his home or how glowing his portfolio, none of these things truly matter. He knows that all the things of the earth will dim and lose their value. He knows that true treasure is what is laid up in heaven. All that really matters is that he has been redeemed and that while his body and riches will perish like the fading flower, like the text says, yet His home is in heaven, and that's where his true treasure is. Again, it is a true blessing to see those who are blessed abundantly with the riches of this world, and yet their focus is not upon those things, but it is upon Christ and their recognition of all that he has done for them. This shows us how we can seek true wisdom in all situations, and this could also be applied to any of the variety of circumstances that we find ourselves in as believers, whether that would be marriage and sing- or singleness, having many small children at home and the, and the challenges that that brings, or on the other side of that, those who struggle to have children, those who are stressed from all the hours that are required on their job, or the one who just wishes they could find a job. God's wisdom applies to all all of those situations. God is the source of wisdom for everything. And the gospel addresses our, our greatest need, that we are lost apart from Christ, and no matter what our situation is, is, we need Jesus. We need to be made right with a holy and a just God. We need forgiveness. We need reconciliation. We need what Jesus came to provide, and that is a way of salvation and a forgiveness and a way that we can be made right with a just and holy God. Apart from that, we are hopelessly lost for all eternity. We need wisdom that comes from Him for our trials. We need grace to trust God on those dark days. And that comes as we ask for it. As we ask in faith, 
knowing that our God is rich and gracious to give us those things that we need. Let us pray. Lord God, you are merciful and gracious to us. Your store of wisdom is without limit, without end. Lord, there is wisdom for every need that we face, for decisions that we face, and for trusting you in our trials. Lord, would you give us faith to, that is solidly grounded in who you are. Lord, we, we do want to praise you and adore you for who you are. And Lord, I pray that that would permeate every fiber of our being, that we would come through and, and live our lives in such a way knowing that you are a great, mighty, merciful, giving God. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.